Let's take a look at God's Word, and I want to encourage you this morning. This is a great chapter, as every chapter in the Bible is. I, t- I say that every week because it's always true. But here's the reality. The title of the message today is, No Decision is a Decision. And we're going to see that Paul is moving yet again to yet another divine appointment. And as we saw in the book of Acts, Jesus has gone away, and He left the Holy Spirit upon the church. And it's been said that in the first century church, if the Holy Spirit was removed, 95% of what happened would change and everyone would notice. And it's been said of today that if the Holy Spirit was removed from the church, 95% of what we do wouldn't change and very few people would notice. If we want to see God doing great and awesome things today, we need to have a burden and a passion and a desperation for God. And we need to be led by, filled with, and directed by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the book of Acts is such a powerful book, because we see what God can do with men and women who are totally sold out to God, who are willing to let the Holy Spirit be upon them in a powerful way. And so we saw the first half with Peter, the transformation in his life. And then we saw with Paul, how he was a man zealous to persecute Christians, and then on the road to Damascus, on his way to to get some Christians and throw them in jail with letters in his pocket, he gets knocked off his high horse. If you remember, he was blinded, and he ends up going into Damascus, a blind man being led by the hand. He becomes humbled, goes from being prideful to being humbled. Pride is never a godly characteristic. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, and Paul becomes humbled. And then God has a great calling on Paul's life. He calls him to the Gentiles. Paul initially struggles with that calling. But he goes out on three missionary journeys, and during that time, we see much of the known world being impacted by Paul's ministry. Churches being planted all over Asia. Churches being planted throughout the Gentile world. But there was still a burden in Paul's heart, and that burden was for his people, for the Jews. He would say in Romans chapter 9 that he would allow himself, it would be if he could be accursed, if his people would be saved. Lord, Put their curse on me if my people could just be saved. And then as God finally gave him that opportunity, after ministering to the Gentiles for many years and was sending him back to the Jews, as he was headed there, what happened? People began to tell him, Paul, if you go minister to the Jews, heavy-duty stuff's going to be in front of you. They're going to attack you. They're going to bind you. They're going to beat you. And what did he say? One of my favorite verses in the Bible Again, if you haven't memorized this verse, I would encourage you to do so. Acts 20, 24 says this. This is Paul speaking. When they said, when you go, you're going to face heavy trials. He said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify testify to the gospel of grace. Paul said, you know what? I have such a burden for my people that beatings are not going to alter my passion for them. I'm not worried about what men think. None of these things are going to move me. And it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to live it. And we saw in Acts 21 when he showed up in in Jerusalem, what happened? As soon as he walked into the temple, he was there just for days, and they grabbed a hold of him and began to beat him just as it had been prophesied. They were beating him, and they would have beat him to death, but Roman soldiers came down and rescued him. And then as he was being dragged away to the barracks, this mob was saying, away with him, away with him. Much like with Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. And as they were dragging him away, he gets up to the top of the stairs and he has said not one word the entire time they're beating him. He doesn't respond, he doesn't defend himself. And finally, moved by the Holy Spirit, he turns to the Roman guard and says, may I speak to these people? 
Now, I'll be honest with you, if people are trying to kill me, the last thing I probably want to do is share Jesus with them. But Paul's burden was for the people. And none of these things were going to move him. And so what did he do? Instead of just saying, hey, you guys beat me up, then tough. Whatever happens to you, too bad. Instead, he gets up in front of this mob that is trying to kill him, and he shares his testimony. Now, we know that as he shared his testimony, he shared the gospel with clarity. But at one point, he used the word Gentiles and said that God had desired the Gentiles to be saved too. And yet another riot broke out. And Paul was dragged away yet again. And this time he was brought to the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. Now understand, Paul could have thought, what a heavy duty trial for me. But instead what he realized was, every time I go through a trial, it's an opportunity for the gospel. So now I've been drug away from the big crowd, and now I'm standing in front of the religious elite of the day, and I get to share Jesus with these guys. He begins to share with them, and we know what happens. Once again, they plot to kill him. Forty men, if you'll remember from a few weeks ago, said, we're not going to eat until Paul's dead. And they said, we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink, we've got to kill this guy. Why? Because he's preaching the resurrection. Because he's preaching Jesus Christ. Paul had done nothing wrong but love his people. And so we saw that then the, the plot to kill him became known. And when it became known to his nephew, he went and told Lysias, the commander of the Roman guard, and, the, and they sent 470 soldiers to give him safe passage to Felix, to where he would there stand trial yet again. And so we see that he stood before Lysias, he stood before all these different guys, and every place that he's gone, he doesn't ever say, woe is me, and what a bummer, he says, an opportunity for the gospel, another divine appointment. Well, this morning, as we get to chapter 24, we're going to see yet another divine appointment. From the riotous crowd to the Sanhedrin, and now to Felix the governor. Now Ananias had come against him, and remember in chapter 23, two weeks ago, that he was standing there, and Paul was just simply saying that he had done nothing wrong before God, and Ananias commanded the Roman soldier to do what to him? Smack him in the mouth. You remember that? Ananias was a wicked guy who loved to fleece God's people, who stole from them, and Paul looked at him and called him a hypocrite. You whitewash wall. And you know what? He later asked for forgiveness for talking that way to the high priest. But the reason he spoke that way to the high priest is because the high priest wasn't acting like a high priest. You know, the application for you and I is this. People should not be surprised when they find out you're a Christian. Amen? If your lifestyle surprises people when they find out that you've been born again, that's not good. And the high priest, they found he was a high priest and he was in shock. And again, he was rescued away, and now he's gone away, and he's brought one more time before the Roman, uh, before Felix, the governor of Caesarea. He's been shipped off, again rescued. They would have killed him one more time. He's been rescued yet again, and now he's going to appear before Felix. So this morning, we're going to see that no decision is a decision. And we're going to see that while Felix thinks that he's putting Paul on trial, we're going to see that Felix is really the one on trial this morning. We're going to see that Paul is there by divine appointment, that God had promised him he would go to Rome. God's not through with him yet. Paul has no fear or worry about being put to death because for him to live as Christ and to die is gain anyway. But we're going to see that Felix is on trial, and it's not Paul. And the gospel puts you and I all on trial this morning. So we're first going to see false accusations 
Then we're going to see Paul's faithful defense. And then lastly, we're going to see Felix procrastinate. Thus the title, No Decision is a Decision. So Acts 24, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look first at false accusations. Now after five days, that's five days being in Caesarea, being brought away in the praetorium, again rescued from the Jews wanting to kill him one more time, the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. Now after five days... He's been there. Paul's accusers arrived to make their case against Paul. It's amazing that wherever Paul went, one of two things happened. Riot or revival. Either people got saved or there was a huge riot. And you know what? There were people that did not like Paul so much that they would follow him from city to city just to accuse him. The Asian Jews were just trekking from city to city. Now this is a 60 60 to 65 mile trek. Back in those days, you didn't get in your car and drive for an hour to go 65 miles. This was a several-day journey. And so we see here that Paul's been brought away, and here come his accusers following him. And among those accusers is Ananias. Now, we talked about this guy. Ananias was a cruel and corrupt man. He was supposed to be the high priest, which is the guy who represents God to the people. The one who goes in and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. The one who makes sacrifice. And instead, he had turned his position into a money-making operation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, how what he did was he told the priest to make sure every animal was qualified as unclean, and then make them buy our animals for five times the price, the ones that had been pre-approved for sacrifice. He was a millionaire by the day's standards. He was a corrupt man. He was a man who cared only for himself. And when He ran into Paul. He didn't like what Paul had to say because Paul let Ananias know that he was a sinner. Paul let Ananias know that his position meant nothing before God. Paul let Ananias know that it's Jesus Christ him crucified and risen from the dead. And that's the path to salvation, not being a righteous man. Ananias was such a a dirty guy that he was later put to death by his own people through an uprising. But it says here, you see that the priest came down with the elders. So again, these religious leaders came with him. They're all coming for one reason. They want to get rid of Paul. You know, this guy is speaking boldly the gospel, and it, it makes me uncomfortable. i got to shut this guy up. You know, isn't it interesting that today, you can have a Buddha just about anywhere, and no one's going to get offended. You put up a cross, and, or the Ten Commandments, and man, they're going to court, and they're you know, signing petitions, and they want to do everything they can to get the gospel dialed down. You know, Mel Gibson's under attack for this movie. Praise God. Be praying for this movie. I pray that God would use it to bring revival because nobody that watches that movie will be able to walk out without making a decision about Jesus Christ. Amen? Invite your friends. Buy them a ticket. Do whatever it takes. But we see here that they want to shut Paul up because they've got a great gig. Ananias is the high priest. People worship him in a sense. They bow to him. They kiss his ring, if you will. And that's, that should never happen with any man. You should kiss no man's ring. You should worship no man. You should honor, you honor God alone. Amen? Jesus Christ is the great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father. And Ananias wants to shut him up. It's so interesting this guy, that Ananias at this point is more than 80 years old. But he's willing to travel some 60 plus miles to try to quiet Paul. The elders were the other self-righteous men who too were concerned with losing their power. Now, who do they bring with them? A certain orator named Tertullus. Now, this guy was an attorney, basically. 
And this guy was really eloquent. This guy was, a, was, was charismatic and could really take words and could convince people of things. And so they brought their, their attorney with them. Now he was a hired gun who was more concerned with winning a case than uncovering truth. He was willing to do whatever it took to win his case. He didn't care if he had to lie. It didn't make any difference. You know, he was the, the Johnny Cochran of the day, if you will. You know, let's bring this guy and let him present our case. And, you know, he's really eloquent. And we can get rid of this Paul once and for all. And so we see here that Ananias has come. And the elders have come. And it says they gave evidence. They gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, who is the governor? Let me tell you about this guy. His name is Felix. How many remember the cartoon Felix the Cat? This guy's Felix the Rat, okay? This guy is bad news. This guy was once a slave and was given governorship position because of his brother's friendship with Caesar. This guy was up to no good. This guy had, had high priests put to death. He didn't care about anything. He was totally focused on himself. He was a wicked and a vile man. He ruled harshly. He abused his power. He wanted to get even with those who had once been on him when he was corrupt. So what do we got here? We've got a hypocritical high priest, corrupt and self-righteous elders, an eloquent hired gun, and Felix the Rat coming against Paul. Here's Paul. This is who he's facing. And who's with Paul at this point? God is. And no one else. Paul has no defender, but God is for us. Who can be against us? Amen? The Lord is on his side. And so they're going to bring Paul and once again put him on trial. And Paul can feel overwhelmed and say, man, you know, a riotous crowd. I've been beaten already. They wanted to scourge me. Now they drug me off. And now I've had more people attacking me and I keep having to be saved. He was, that wasn't as hard as all, at all. It was none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Here's another opportunity to preach Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. Praise God. And watch how he responds. He's going to remain silent until the opportune time. So again, contrary to their beliefs, these guys who are coming against Paul, it's not Paul who's on trial, it's them. Paul eventually is going to share a message with them, and they're going to have to make a decision about it. They think that they're coming after him. Though things don't look good for him, Paul having the Holy Spirit and God's promise was not going to wilt in the midst of adversity. Look at verse 2. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through, your, through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity, being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, I just told you what kind of guy Felix was. Does this sound like an accurate description? Oh, most noble Felix. There's so much peace in the land because you're such a wonderful... Doesn't this sound like an attorney? Right? You're such a wonderful man. You're so great. Now, the interesting part is he said, you have brought us great peace. He starts with false flattery, buttering up Felix. You know, there was riots throughout the land. There's so much peace that Paul needed 470 soldiers to accompany him for him to get to the city safely. Does that sound like peace to you? But again, he's flattering him up. He's buttering up Felix. Felix, a prideful man's love in every word of it. He says, you've brought us times of prosperity. Felix had robbed the people blind and had appointed corrupt leaders. He called him noble Felix. Felix was a thief. Felix was a rat. He was a, 
He was an unjust man. He was a brutal man. But again, you see how, how man tries to attack those who God are using. Whatever methods are necessary. And he butters up the judge. If I can butter up the judge and get him on my side, then maybe we can finally get rid of this guy, Paul. You know what? The good news is, guys, sometimes people are going to falsely accuse you at work. People are going to say things about you that aren't true. I want to encourage you with something. God knows the circumstances you're going through. God loves you. God's faithful. And God is indeed in control. Amen? It doesn't matter how many people falsely accuse you. Nothing's going to happen unless God allows it. It's an opportunity for the gospel. Paul understood that. Verse 4. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Again, flowery language and false flattery in hopes of strengthening his case before this godless and brutal man, Felix. Felix, again, drinking it all in. Now he's going to go from false flattery, buttering up the judge, to false accusations against Paul. Because they have nothing to accuse Paul of because Paul has done nothing wrong. So they've got to come up with accusations. Now, whose trial does this sound like? Jesus' trial. Remember? They brought Jesus in. They had people come in and bring false accusations against him because they had no accusations against him. So if you're being falsely accused, you're in good company because it happened to our Savior. It happens here to Paul. But remember, we need to learn to trust that God is in control. So first they come with a a personal charge against Paul. Look at verse 5. For we we have found this man a plague. In other translations, the word is a pest or a disease. This guy's a disease. Now that's not real flattering, I don't think, right? Paul's a disease. You know what, though? In one sense, he was. Because everywhere he went, he infected everyone around him. Amen? Everywhere Paul went, people were touched and people's lives were impacted by him. But they attack Paul personally and they call him a disease. Then they bring a political charge. It says, He is a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So they first attack Paul's character and call him a disease, and now they're going to attack Paul's motives and say all this guy wants to do is stir up people. Now understand that the Romans were in fear of a Jewish uprising, and the last thing they wanted was the Jews getting together and forming some kind of an uprising. So whenever they heard of somebody bringing dissension, the first thing they wanted to do was squash it. And Tertullus isn't stupid. He understands that. And he says, this Paul guy is a disease. Not only is he a disease, but he wants to stir up the people and bring riots. And Felix, you might lose your position. Felix doesn't want that. And so he, but also it says, he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Where did Jesus grow up? What city? Nazareth, Right? Remember when Jesus came and, and Philip was told that he found the Messiah and Philip said, where is he from? It says Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Those of you going to Israel with us, Nazareth, Nazareth isn't much of a place. It's a dirt town. It really is. It's a hick town. There's not much there. And they said of Jesus, oh, he's from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I believe this is also a slam. He's, he's the head of the Nazarenes. Again, a word used for the Christians. Wherever he goes, he causes problems. Again, these serious charges were to get the Romans to come against him and to try to, again, 
get him to silence Paul. He's the ringleader of the Nazarenes. Finally, a doctrinal charge. Look what it says in verse 6. He tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to the law. This is nothing short of a ball-faced lie. He just flat out lies here. Remember when Paul went into Jerusalem, he, did he go into the temple? Yes. Remember he brought four Jewish men with him who had paid their, uh, he paid for their uh, vow, and they went in to the temple, and he was there for a few days. He did not even stir up the temple. Now, not that Paul hasn't stirred up a few temples, all right? Paul was not afraid to preach the gospel in the temple, but in this time he had not at all. And they say, say here that he tried to profane the temple. The accusation they made against him was that he brought Gentiles into the temple. And even though this accusation wasn't true, Tertullus was up there with full force going against Paul. It says, and we seized him wanting to judge him according to our law. Now, is that what happened? Did they see him in the temple and they went in and they grabbed him and then they went and took him off and put him on trial and had a defense and had a big court hearing. Is that what happened? No, what happened was they grabbed him and started beating him, and it says that the beating was, their desire was to kill him. There was no trial. There was nothing done. They dragged him out of the temple, and they were literally trying to pull him limb from limb, and it was so heinous that the Roman soldiers came in and rescued him. So Tertullus is painting Paul in the worst light, and he's painting the Jews in the best light. He said, hey, we just went down there according to our law, and we seized him. And then we were having a trial because he was profaning our temple, right? That sounds pretty fair and reasonable. No, what they did is they grabbed him by the nap of the neck. They drug him out of the courtyard. They closed the door of the temple. They began to try to beat him to death. Now, notice, as all these accusations are coming, that they're filled with lies. But notice again that Paul has not said one word. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't try to defend himself because he knows that God is on his side. Again, they had attacked him. They tried to kill him. Tertullus, this guy's smooth, isn't he? Guy's a disease. This guy, you know, he brings riots everywhere. He's probably a threat to you, Felix. You don't want these Jews rising up. You know what else? He went into our temple and profaned it. You know, went contrary to our religion. And, And we just tried to put him on trial. That's all we've done. We're just these innocent guys. We've done nothing wrong. He's a disease. We need to take care of him. Look at verse 7. But the commander, Lysias, came with great violence and took him out of our hands. Now, I'll tell you, this is pretty uh, heavy duty for him to do because he's making an accusation against a Roman commander. Now, did Lysias pull Paul away from the people? They were trying to kill him. Yes, he did. But had he gone in with violence? No, he went in to rescue Paul. So lies are being told about Paul, and now even lies are being told about Lysias. Again, when it was only through his intervention that Paul's life was saved, he came in, and if he hadn't stepped in, Paul would have been beaten to death. And Tertullus' lying words seek to turn the Jews from guilty lawbreakers to innocent victims. We were just taking him off to court, and the Romans came down and violently took him away from us. And that's why we've had to come all the way out here to talk to you today. Again, lying through his teeth. Verse 8. Commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. 
So they commanded his accusers to come. Lysias said, look, if you want to try this guy, you're not doing it in a lawful way. You're going to kill him. So if you want to try him, we're going to bring him up to Felix the governor. And if you want to bring accusations, you're going to have to go up there where I know he's going to get a fair trial. That's simply what has happened. So they bring Paul away. And again, they come and and they say, he finishes up his dissertations by saying, you know, when you examine him, you're going to find everything that I've told you is true. So false accusations, you know, false flattery, false accusations, and now seeking a false conviction. And again, how many of you have ever been falsely accused of something before? Raise your hand. Isn't it hard not to defend yourself? Don't you want to, man, that ain't right. I didn't do that. That ain't fair, right? I'll tell you what. If you've got children in your house, you know all about this one, right? That ain't fair. That ain't right, right? You know? And here's the reality. I love Paul and the example that he gives because his faith is so firmly in the Lord that he trusts and knows that God is in control. And look what it says there. The Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So all the Jews agreed together in their false witness against Paul. Who else did all the Jews agree together and say, crucify him? Jesus. Paul's in good company. There's nothing new under the sun. False accusations are going to come from the world. And it's interesting that false witnesses will always outnumber faithful men. Sometimes you're going to feel like the lone ranger at work or in your neighborhood. Nobody else here loves the Lord. Don't be surprised because false witnesses will always outnumber faithful men. And we see here that Paul's being put on trial, and all these people are affirming a lie, but it doesn't mean it's the truth. You know what? If everybody tells a lie, it doesn't make it the truth. Amen? You know, it wasn't that many hundreds of years ago that most people on the planet thought the world was flat. Right? Isn't that true? Was the world flat? But, but, but we, what, if, what if you don't believe in gravity? Does gravity still work? I mean, it's not what you believe. It's not what you think. The truth is the truth whether you believe it or not. And they're putting him on trial, but now he's about to let, put them on trial. Felix is about to be put on trial. Tertullus is about to be put on trial. Because we're going to see again that these, the deck seems to be stacked heavily against Paul. He's got this ungodly judge who's been flattered. He's got false accusations. His own countrymen, the Jews, are in 100% agreement that he's guilty. No one there to speak for him. No one on his side. No one except God, that is. The Bible said, if God is for us, who can be against us? We must remember that. So we've seen these false accusations. Now Paul is going to speak, and he's going to give a faithful defense. So let's begin looking at verse 10, because Paul didn't panic, and I love this, at the overwhelming odds. He viewed this as another opportunity for the gospel. He's a man who's being meek, strength under control of his master. And he's going to put all those who hear him on trial by confessing the real reason that God had brought him there. Those of you who go to Israel with us, we're going to sit in the very place where this trial took place. And we're going to look at these chapters. And we're going to see exactly where it happened. The crowd gathered around, accusations being hurled, screaming and yelling and mocking, Tertullus being there, Felix the rat standing there next to him as the judge. And Paul's going to step up. And with the Holy Spirit within him is going to respond with great peace. And you know what? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. He doesn't respond in anger. You know what? Quite often when I'm trying to discern who's right in a situation, 
I usually look at the one who's angry. And, you know, positive is usually uh, wrong at the top of your lungs, right? You know, angry, bitter, that's not a Christ-like attribute. These guys are angry, they're bitter, they're calling out to kill Paul. But we're going to see how Paul responds. Look what it says in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered. Again, note the calmness. In the midst of the false accusations, he waited for the chance to speak. He wasn't like over there going, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not true. Wait a minute, right? He wasn't doing that. And that's how my response usually is, right? Jump up and down, wait a minute, that's not, point one, let's get back to point one. He's not doing that. He sits there and he waits and says, God is for me, who can be against me? There's another opportunity for the gospel. And he waited for the opportunity. When we truly put our faith in God and his promises, we don't need to panic. We don't need to stress out. And we don't even need to fight to defend ourselves. Understand this, fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith. If God is in control, do you have anything to worry about? What's the answer? No. Will he provide for you? Has he promised? Has he promised to watch over your children? Is he a faithful? Yes, he is. Do we have anything to be afraid of? No. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. God is in control. Do we have anything to be anxious about or stressed out about? Or, you know, no. As Christians, we should have peace. My best friend created the universe. I'm ha-ha, heaven bound, right? As DC Talk would say. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I know where I'm headed. My my. Eternity is secure. My walk today is walking with the, with the creator of the universe who's got my back. What do I have to worry about? Paul understood that and realized God's in control. Let him take care of it. If he wants you to speak up, he will give you an opportunity. And that's exactly what he did for Paul. And look how Paul responds. Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Now, does he flatter Felix a bunch like... Uh, Tertullus? No. He says the only true thing he can say, I know you've been here for a while. That's all he says about him. Well, I know you've been a judge for many years. That's all I can say about you, Felix. My, you know, my mom taught me prayer and praise. I can't say anything good, so I'm not going to say much, right? And so here's the reality. He says, Felix, I can't say much about you, but you know, here's my opportunity. I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Again, I look forward to the opportunity. Because, again, he's going to put them on trial. So first, Paul's going to address the things they said against him, and then he's going to share with them the gospel. Look at verse 11. Because you may ascertain, it was no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they didn't find me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. You know, all the things they accused him of, it sounded like he'd been in Jerusalem for a couple years, just stirring it up, right? You know how long he had been there? Three or four days. That's it. And he says to him, Felix, it's only been 12 days total since I entered Jerusalem. I've been here in Caesarea five of those days. You know, I had to travel here for a day. Uh, I was only there a few days. I didn't stir anybody up. None of these things that they say are true. But I notice again the calmness in the way he responds. He's not screaming. He's not shouting. He's not jumping across the table and jumping on the defense attorney. He's just stating the facts and doing it in a calm way. He refutes their charges, all the accusations they had brought. 
verse 14 and 15. Now watch Paul's confession. What does Paul confess to the reasons why he's there? I want you to see these things. This is a key part of the text. But I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So what does Paul share? Three things. Number one, he shares his allegiance with Christ. He says, hey, I confess to you that according to the way, I worship God. Who's the way? Christians, Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He said, hey, I'll tell you what, I didn't do anything they said, but let me confess to you who I am and what I have done. I am of Christ. I'm one of his followers, and I worship him according to the way that Jesus Christ set down for us. I'm a follower of the Lord. I confess that openly. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can accuse me of what you want, and I won't be excited in my response. I'll respond calmly. But you want me to be excited? Let me tell you who I do follow. Let me tell you what my life really is all about. Let me tell you who I worship. Let me tell you about my God. Again, identifies himself with Jesus Christ. The only way to God is through Christ. You need to understand that this morning. I know you, those of you who have been coming for any length of time, you've heard me say it. Jesus Christ is the only path to heaven. Amen? Amen? All other gods are dead. Buddha's dead. Joseph Smith of the Mormon church is dead. Charles Taze Russell is dead. Muhammad is dead. Jesus Christ is a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death, and there's no other path to heaven but by Him. Pastor Dave, that's so narrow. You know, don't we need to have a big tent and let everybody in? Hey, first of all, I don't make the rules. The Bible does, and I'm glad that there's only one way and not 50 different ways I have to try to figure out which of those is accurate. Amen? Aren't you glad that the gospel is so simple? Jesus says, I love you. I died for you. I paid for your sin. Will you accept my free gift? That's salvation. And he says, I'm of the way. And that I am excited about. And I worship. Now look at this part. I worship the God of what? What does it say? My fathers. Now who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews. What is he? A Jew. He's saying, I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They think they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I truly do because Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Messiah that was to come. And he's witnessing full on to these guys who are accusing him. They're the ones on trial as he is boldly proclaiming the fact that Judaism was fulfilled in Christ. Now, how does Paul know that Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism? How does he know that? How do you know that? How do I know that? Look at the next confession that he makes. Look what he says. Believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets. What is another name for the law and the prophets? The Old Testament. He said, I believe all things written in the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets point to the Messiah. If you've been coming on Wednesday night to the Old Testament study, if you're not, I encourage you to come. Man, you just see Jesus in every Old Testament chapter. You can't miss him. He's in the volume of the book. He's in every single chapter. And what he said is, 
I believe the law and the prophets, and because I've studied the law and the prophets, I know that they point to Jesus Christ, and I know he's the fulfillment of the God of my fathers. The God they've been waiting for, Jesus Christ is it. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament, whether it be the sacrificial system, the tabernacle and its furnishings, the feast that they observed, all point to Jesus. What about all the prophecies about the Messiah? Where does the, where does the Bible say that the Messiah would be born? Where does it say in the Old Testament? says he'll be born in Bethlehem. How many of you decided where you were going to be born? Raise your hand. You can't do it unless you're God. Amen? Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Prophecies concerning his life, the way that he lived, even how he would die. Prophecy of crucifixion hundreds of years before crucifixion existed in the book of Isaiah and in Psalm 22, that he would be lifted up. What does that mean? There was no such thing. But Jesus fulfilled it. He says, I know because I study the law and the prophets. You know what? The reason people struggle, struggle in knowing the true and the living God is they don't spend time in his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's God's word that brings greater faith to our hearts and understanding of who God is. Remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He was riding along in his chariot. He was reading from the prophet. And what happened? As he was riding along in his chariot, Philip comes running up next to him. What a scene that must have been. Can you imagine you're blasting along in your Camaro, going 80 miles an hour down the freeway, and all of a sudden some guy's on your window, right? <laughs> Dude, right? And that's what's, you know, he's in the chariot, and he's reading the Old Testament, and he doesn't understand, and Philip runs up beside him and goes, hey guy, you want me to explain that to you? Uh, yeah, could you? And it says that Philip gets in and he preached from that page, Jesus. He preached the Messiah from the Old Testament. And what happened to the eunuch? They stopped the chariot, right? They pulled the Camaro off to the side of the freeway. He got out and went down until the water was on the side of the road and got baptized. From the Old Testament, he preached Jesus. Remember the story of the road to Emmaus after Jesus' crucifixion. The two men were walking along the road. You remember this? And all of a sudden, a stranger comes up alongside them in Luke 24, and it was Jesus. And it says, in beginning at Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Everything of the Old Testament points to Jesus. He said, look, I confess that I'm of the way, and the way that I know that he is the way is I know what the Bible says, and I've read the Old Testament, not to mention the fact that he appeared to me when I was on the road to Damascus. And what an awesome thing. Now, we see here that when defending himself, he doesn't have a great amount of passion or zeal. But when pointing people to Christ, he's pretty fired up. And I like that about Paul. Paul's a pretty awesome guy. Sadly, many, quote, Christians today challenge the word. Can I encourage you with something? If you go to a church and they start watering down the Bible, run quickly out of that place. Because God's word Every single letter is inspired by God. It's without error. It is perfect. It's God's love letter to us. And you know what the cults do? They make man more than he is and God less than he is. And they deny his word. They want to take chapters out of the Bible. And they don't want to listen and heed the counsel of God. Well, the Bible, yeah, well, the Bible, that was written 2,000 years ago. Hey, read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? God's word applies to our lives today. And he said, I know it because what the law and the prophets say. And finally, his third confession. Look what he says here. I have hope in God. How many of you have hope this morning? Raise your hand. Isn't that good? Hey, are we going to heaven, you guys? Yes. 
Amen? Isn't that great? And so often we get so bummed out about life and we get our eyes on the physical perspective and when we do, we start blowing our tent. Man, you know, things aren't right at work. I should have got that promotion. Right? And what happens is we're blowing our testimony instead of keeping our eyes on heaven and realizing, man, God's so good. He loves me. He died for me. He's living inside of me. I got the promise of heaven. I have hope in God. And Paul says, guys, I have hope, knowing that they don't. I have hope in God. And what is the source of his hope? Look what it says. That there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. How many of you know that death is not the end? Christians don't die, they move. Amen? You close your eyes here and you open them up in glory. And you move to a much better neighborhood. Amen? Hey, if I die before the Lord returns, have a moving party, okay? Bring some U-Haul boxes and some tape and, you know, I'm gone. It's okay. I left behind this temporary tent and I'm living in the presence of the creator of the universe. Christians die well because we don't die, we move. And Paul understood that, the resurrection. But look what he says here. The resurrection is both of the just and the unjust. What does that mean? The just have the promise of heaven. What do the unjust have the promise of? Hell and separation from God. Oh, pastor, don't talk about hell. That, you know, right? We don't talk about hell at church. People don't like that, right? But here's the reality. I'd much better talk to you about it than have you experience it. Amen? Hell is a real place. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And my heart, I'll tell you, my heart is that not one of you would spend eternity there. It breaks my heart. When I see people that don't know the Lord and it's evident, my heart just breaks considering what their future holds. But you know what? Every saved person this side of heaven should be burdened for every unsaved person this side of hell. Paul understood that. And Paul spoke to them. Who's on trial, guys? Is it Paul? Or is it those hearing what he's saying? There is a resurrection, you guys, for both the just and the unjust. Jesus is the Messiah who was written of in the prophets. The resurrection, all are going to be raised. Your eternity lies in the balance. With Christ, you can have eternal life. Outside of Him, you're going to suffer and be separated from Him for all eternity. You know, it's interesting. We see attributes of a true believer. He's of the way, like Paul. He's a believer in the Word, and he trusts in the resurrection, both the resurrection of Christ and the one that's to come for you and I. Those are attributes of a true believer. Look at verse 17. Now, after many years... Verse 16, excuse me. This being so, I myself also strive to have a good conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul says, you know, because I know the resurrection's coming, I want to have a good testimony both before God and men. I want to be an example to men of the hope that lies within me, that Jesus Christ is coming. Verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some of the Jews of Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They they ought to have been here before you to object if any, if any had anything to say against me. So he first talks about the accusations. And he says, I was in the temple, but I went there to worship and to bring offerings to the people who were hurting. Verse 20 and 21. Or else let those who were here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is the one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by this. Paul once again says, I'm guilty of only one thing, and that's preaching the resurrection. That's what I'm guilty of. And if you want to accuse me of that, then bring it on. 
So, finally, we've seen false accusations. We've seen a faithful defense. Now, watch Felix's reaction. And I want us to be attentive here these last few minutes because I think this is really key to this entire message. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Felix is on trial, and Felix says, You know, I've heard about this Jesus before, and you know what? I'm not ready to hear about this right now. Why don't you just go away, and when Lysias shows up, I'll decide on your case. I don't want to deal with this. Ever shared your faith with somebody? And that's, man, don't talk to me about that. I had a friend in high school. Every time I'd start talking about the Lord, just stop! Like, just like that. Dude, stop, man. Don't, 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 don't. I'm like, whoa, slow down. I'm not trying to hate you. I'm just telling you, Jesus, don't, don't talk to me about Jesus. This is where Felix is at. Dude, just, you know, step off. Hey, uh, when Lysias gets here, we'll make this. I heard about this way before, and I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear it. Felix is on trial, and Felix doesn't want to hear what Paul has to say. Verse 23, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for, provide for or visit him. So Paul was not put in prison. Instead, he was allowed to move about the palace, but he was chained to a different guard every six hours. Now, what do you think Paul was doing for six hours chained to a guard? <laughs> clack, clack. Oh, dude, divine appointment. Now, let me tell you, Right? I mean, everything that happened to him, he just thought, oh, right on, another opportunity, right? I'm going to preach Jesus to this guy, right? And he just, every six hours, he had a brand new audience that couldn't get away, right? And I know there's no doubt in my mind that some of those guards got saved. But watch this, and we're almost done here, but take a look at verse 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning his faith in Christ. Now, I don't know what provoked this, but here's yet another divine appointment. He comes before him. Now, Drusilla, let me tell you about this girl. She's 19 years old. Her father was Herod Antipas. He was the one that had James beheaded, Peter in prison, and he was the guy that got up and started speaking how great he was. You guys remember the story? And the people said, voice of a God, not a man, and worms ate him. That's Drusilla's dad. What about Drusilla's uh, great-grandfather? His name was Herod the Great. He was the one that had all the infants slaughtered at the time of Jesus' birth. What about the, the, her uncle? Her uncle was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Well, she didn't have a very good background, did she? The Herods were pretty rough guys. That'd be an incredible miniseries, the Herods, right? I mean, these guys are bad news, right? <laughs> and these were her family. But you know what I love about this? This shows that no matter what your background is, that God will give you an opportunity to know him. I don't care how rough your family life's been. I don't care what things you've been through. God still loves you, and he's going to give you an opportunity to know him. And so Drusilla comes in, and she's before him with Felix. And here's an opportunity for them to be saved. And now now watch this again. Three key words, and we're almost done. Look what he says. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. We We don't have this whole message, but we have the three main points righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. I wrote down righteousness. They have to do something about yesterday's sin. We must be righteous to enter into heaven. But the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and none is righteous, no, not one. But holy God demands righteousness. So what are we going to do? 
We're all sinners, but we must be righteous to enter into heaven. Our good works can't get us there. God can have no sin in His presence. We must first realize we are sinners to realize that we need a Savior. You know, sin is a word that people are trying to take out of our vocabulary. Isn't that true? People don't want to talk about sin anymore. You're not a sinner. You've got a disease. Right? Well, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a sexual addict. No. You're a pervert. <laughs> I got it. I'm a, I'm a, I got an alcohol problem. No, you're a drunkard. Oh, Pastor Dave, hit me where I live, right? But here's the reality, that we need to see that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Understand, we're all sinners in this room. Amen? Amen? Every single one of us. What did Paul later say in life? I'm the chief of what? Sinners. The closer you get to God, the more you realize what a sinner you are and how desperate you need to be for the Lord. And so the first thing he speaks to them about is righteousness. Guys, you're sinners. He spoke to them about the fact that we must be righteous to enter in to heaven. But again, in the world today, disobedience has become a disorder. Sin has become a disease. It's not my fault. It's the woman thou gavest me. Right? It's my parents. It's the house I grew up in. I'm, I'm inclined. Yeah, you're inclined to sin because you're born sinner. Amen? Well, I'm just inclined to it. It's not my... Well, we're all inclined to it. That's why we must be born again. So when confronted with sin, guys, here's what we can do. We can do one of three things. We can make excuses, we can accuse others, or we can repent. I hate to pick on my kids, but, you know, kids are really good at making excuses when they sin, aren't they? Yeah, but he, but he, but he was looking at me, and he, you know, right? But we do that too as adults. Somebody, we do something that's wrong and we want to make an excuse. Well, I'm, I've got a bad attitude because those people aren't treating me right. Well, I, I'm acting this way because my boss is just a... Hey, whoa. When confronted with sin, you can make excuses. You can accuse others or you're, you can repent. We're all sinners. We can only be saved through Christ's righteousness and his work on the cross. So he speaks about righteousness, then he speaks about self-control. So yesterday's sin and then today's temptation. You know, man can control anything but himself. Man cannot control himself. Felix was this unscrupulous official. He would lie, cheat, murder to rid himself of enemies. He promoted himself. Drusilla, this 19-year-old girl, had left her husband to marry Felix, to become his third wife. It's impossible for us to live godly lives apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He says, guys, righteousness. You must be righteous and you must walk in self-control. Those things are impossible without Christ in my life. My, I will not be righteous and I cannot walk in holiness. I cannot endure today's temptation. And then lastly, he spoke to them of the judgment to come. Acts 17, he has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. righteousness. Jesus Christ is either your Savior or he will be your judge. He has given us assurance of this by raising himself from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Now, how did Felix respond? The way any unbeliever ought to. Look what it says. And Felix was what? He was afraid. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you got dragged here by somebody or you came and, and you know what, right now you hear about sin and you hear about the fact that there's a price for it and maybe you're afraid. And that's a, you know what? If you don't know the Lord, the fear of God is a good thing because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. So Paul's afraid. The word there for afraid literally is he became terrified. And you have to understand that Roman officials showed no 
emotion, real stoic, and he was terrified. Now, how does he respond? And answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. No decision is a decision. I used to say, most of you know, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. If you're standing on a railroad track and a train's coming and you're trying to decide whether or not you want to get off that track, no decision is a decision. Amen? You don't get off the track, that train will absolutely smoke you, right? Well, I'm thinking about it. And here's the reality. One of Satan's favorite things to do is to tell you that there's no hurry when it comes to you making a decision about Jesus Christ. You don't have to decide today. You can put it off till tomorrow. You want to party a little more first, don't you? You want to live, you know, hey man, when you're 85 years old on your deathbed, maybe then, but you don't have to do it now. Sleep on it for a while. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Amen? And no decision is a decision. You know what? Why would you want to put off inheriting eternal life? I don't get that. Why do you want to put it off? He loves you. Well, if I become a Christian, he's going to take everything away. No, he's not. He's going to give you everything that is good and help you relieve you from everything that is bad. He's a perfect, loving, heavenly father who knows what's best for you. He says, I'll talk to you later about this. Last two verses. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. What happened? He heard the gospel. Now he cares about his money. He's bringing Paul in every month. And Paul starts preaching the gospel. He's like, now I heard you took up a pretty big collection to bring down to the Jews. Why don't you kick some on over here and I'll let you go. You know what? Paul's like, dude, I'm talking to you about eternal life. Felix, the rat, you need to be saved. Therefore, he sent him, no more, he sent him for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Procurus Felix, Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. You know what happened to Felix? Felix died without ever coming to know Christ. You know what happened to Drusilla? When she was 21 years old, she was on a European shopping spree. Women shopped even then, all right? She was on a European shopping spree, and there's this volcano called Mount Vesuvius. Ever heard of it? It erupted, and she got caught up in the lava flow and died at 21. Sometimes we think, well, I'm 19. I don't have to make a decision about Christ now. That was Drusilla's heart, and she missed the Savior. Today is the day of salvation. It wasn't Paul who was on trial. It was Felix, Drusilla, Ananias, Tertullus, the elders, the Jews, all who heard it. And my prayer would be this, that you and I must address yesterday's sin and today's temptation and tomorrow's judgment. Do you know for sure that you're going to heaven If you don't, you can before you leave here today. Amen? The Bible says you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will be saved to the glory of the Father. Here's the two applications I want to leave you with before we pray. If you're a Christian this morning, may we learn from Paul's example and view every trial as an opportunity for the gospel. How different would you respond to difficulty if you just thought of it as, oh, this is sweet. I'm being chained up. i got a guy I can witness to, right? If you saw every difficulty is an opportunity for the gospel. And if you don't know the Lord, I just want to say this. Today's the day of salvation. No decision is a decision. He loves you so very much. He proposed to you by hanging on a cross. Paid the price for the sin of every one of us in this room. Salvation is offered universally, but it must be accepted individually. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you that the price has been paid, that we're going to heaven. Lord, those of us who know you, we thank you that you not only died to give us eternal life, but you desire to have an intimate relationship with us here and now. Father, I pray for anybody who's here this morning that doesn't know you, that maybe doesn't know for sure if they know you. Maybe I do. Lord, I pray that they would not walk out of this place with any question in their heart, that truly today would be the day of salvation, that they would not like Felix say, I will hear you again another day on this. But Lord, as your Holy Spirit draws them, may they respond to your Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to take a lot of time on this. If you're a believer here, be praying for those who, who are here who don't know the Lord. Again, the offer is being made to you that was offered to Felix. Jesus loves you and he died that you might have eternal life. The Bible says you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. I'm going to ask you to do something real simple. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and say, I want to know for sure when I leave here, I've been born again. I know I'm a sinner, and I want to pray and ask Jesus to be my Savior. If you're here this morning, I just want you to raise your hand, and I will pray with you, and you can know for sure when you walk out of this place, you've been born again. Is there anybody at all? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Today's the day of salvation. No decision is a decision. God bless you. He loves you guys so very much. Let's all pray together with these that have raised their hand. Everybody out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sin, to make me a new creation, to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus Christ is God that he died on the cross for my sin, that he rose from the dead, and that he's coming back to take me home. Help me to walk with you, Lord. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God is so good. Amen. We're going to take communion in a moment. If, you're, if you just gave your life to Jesus Christ, you can take communion today for the first time really